Lord Jesus, you were the one who said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Lord, I pray that through the ministry of your spirit here in this room today, you would enlighten us as to what you had in mind when you said those words. We trust you now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the little freckle-faced, red-haired girl was skipping rope out on the playground when once again that little group of princesses huddled together, pointed in her direction, snickering at her. She felt their disdain, as she had all year. But today her tormentors were especially vicious, pouring it on more than usual, making fun of her and flinging a steady stream of insults and put-downs her way. And finally, she broke down. And with hot tears streaming down her cheeks, she turned and she cried out defiantly, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not true, is it? It's not true. That little saying, uttered in self-defense, only masks the deep pain. Truth is that words can and do hurt us, in some ways wounding more deeply than if we'd been struck by a stick or pummeled with stones. Hurtful words strike at our very core, bruising our hearts. In chapter 3 of his letter, Pastor James now is taking up this very subject of that which comes out of our mouths. After talking in the previous section, you might recall from last weekend, about our deeds serving as the visible proof of our faith, he now turns from our works to our words. But the lesson is the same. True faith shows up in the way people live their lives, including in how they talk. And so both our works and our words reveal the true nature of our faith. This is true, isn't it? Now, this isn't the first time James has mentioned this subject. If you recall back in chapter 1, Verse 26, he wrote these words, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Whoa! That begs for more explanation. And so now, here in chapter 3, James is ready to revisit this topic and expand on it some more. And for those of you who love English and English grammar, James employs a figure of speech here called metonymy when he uses the tongue to represent what the tongue produces, words. Many commentaries title this section, Taming the Tongue. But as we're going to see and as our experience throughout our lives confirms, domesticating that little tiny body part is impossible, at least by human effort. So let me read this section for us this morning. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, 
They are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, And with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. And it's packed, isn't it? There's a lot here. You can tell James is talking about our words and what comes out of our mouths. And he's talking about how important our words are, how powerful they are, how prone they are to go out of control, and how revealing they are of what's inside, what's in our hearts. And so it's like he's Dr. James and he's saying, stick out your tongue and say, ah, we're going to do a little checkup here today. He's going to tell us the truth about our talk. And I'm grateful for this. Aren't you grateful when someone brings it straight, tells us the truth? And Pastor James is going to do that today. You know, Bible scholars see some similarity between what James is saying here and the writings of ancient wisdom literature, particularly the Proverbs. And so I went back and uh, paged through the Proverbs. Let me read a few of them, and, and as you hear them, see if you detect any connection with what James is saying here. Proverbs 10, 19 says, When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Or as one man said, Better to keep quiet and risk people thinking you're stupid than open your mouth and remove all doubt. (laughs) Some truth in that. Proverbs 12, 18, Reckless words pierce, pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15, 1, a gentle answer, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts. They go deep. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. In Proverbs 18.21, the tongue has the power of life and death. and Those who love it will eat of its fruit. See some connections there? There is no question that James is drawing upon the wisdom of Proverbs as he formulates his message here in James 3. I see five points of instruction here in this section. I want to give them to you up front, and then we'll walk through them individually. First, verses 1 and 2, 
appreciate the difficult challenge of reigning in the tongue. Verses 3 through 5, understand the massive influence, the massive influence of the tiny little tongue. Verses 6 through 8, beware of the destructive potential of the restless tongue. Verses 9 and 10, stop the shameful double speak of the inconsistent tongue. And verses 11 and 12, realize that only a transformed heart will produce a tamed tongue. So let's walk through those in the sequence James lays it out for us. Number one, appreciate, he says, the difficult challenge of reigning in the tongue. When you think about it, isn't it true that all Christians, and maybe we should just say all human beings, have trouble controlling their mouths? Isn't that universal? It's interesting to me that he starts this discussion by saying, don't rush into being a teacher, because Teachers will be judged by a higher standard. He's talking particularly about those who teach the Word of God. Now, that's an unusual approach to recruitment for ministry, isn't it? <laughs> I wonder what prompted him to say that. Well, apparently, there were those in James's day, as there are those in our day, who are captivated by the prospect of being that person, that person who gets to stand up in front and teach lots of people the Word of God, that person that... Many, many are looking to for guidance and instruction and inspiration and wisdom. And it certainly can appear to be a glamorous role, speaking to lots of people and such. But James says, slow down. <laughs> if you think that's what God has for you, slow down, not so fast. If it's the teaching ministry that you're setting your sights on, you'd better first carefully consider the cost. Because those people who use words to influence others have a greater accountability before God. That's what he's saying. I thought about that and I, I wondered how much damage has been done by preachers and by teachers who don't take seriously enough their accountability before God to speak his truth. How many of God's people have been led astray by false teaching or just by careless words from the mouths of those who don't realize that one day they're going to stand before Jesus Christ and give account for their words. I do think that focusing on that reality will keep a teacher or a preacher humble, don't you think? And prompt him to be precise in the things that he says. Jesus, our Lord, purchased his church, as you know, with his own blood, and he wants his precious blood-bought people to be well taught in the truth and I know our teachers here at New Life feel the weightiness of this whether they're teaching in our children's ministries and we have wonderful wonderful teachers in our children's ministries or whether they teach in our student ministries and the same is true there or whether they teach adults we feel this I feel this We've got some young guys in our church who are just learning how to preach you know what? They should take to heart the weightiness of this calling and not rush into it like James says here. We who deal in words need to carefully consider the impact that our words will have on people. In verse 2, James then says that if you come across someone who has their mouth under control, <laughs> if you find someone like that, then you can know that you're in the presence of a perfect person. That's what he says. 
The man or woman who can do that will be able to control all of their other impulses, all of their other desires. But as he says, there's not many of those folks around. I agree with him. We all need to appreciate how difficult a task it is to rein in the tongue and control the words that come out of our mouths. That's his first instruction. His second one is this. He wants his readers and us to understand the massive, far-reaching influence of the tiny little tongue. Even though the tongue is a small member of the human body, it has huge power. And that's James' point here. And to illustrate it, he used some metaphors, which he loved to do, which would have been common to his listeners in that day. He said, you know how a tiny metal bit put into the mouth of a horse can enable the rider to steer the whole horse? Or you know how a tiny little appendage at the bottom of a ship called a rudder can be manipulated by the pilot to steer that huge vessel and take it wherever he wants it to go. He says, you know, the tongue is like that. It's a tiny little member of our bodies, but the words that roll off of our tongues have enormous effects on us and on other people. Words have the power to steer your life, to direct your course, to determine your future. That's incredible power. Think about it. Think about it. Just three little words spoken as you gaze into the brown eyes of that sweet face. I love you. Changes the whole ball game, right? The whole ball game. Those three words advance a relationship light years beyond where it was. Or think about two words spoken at a church altar. I do. Whoa. <laughs> That changes everything from then on, doesn't it? Our words have great impact. James wants us to understand that, the influence of the words that we speak to ourselves, to each other, the words we say to God. Like the small bit placed in a horse's mouth, like the small rudder directing a huge sailing vessel, the tiny little tongue can boast of huge impact, huge effect. Now, I wish those effects were all positive, <laughs> but James has been around a while, he knows better, so he turns to the darker side of our words. And number three, he warns us to beware of the destructive potential of the restless tongue. And it's true, our mouths can get us in trouble. Has your mouth ever gotten you in trouble? <laughs> all of us have experienced that. We can create massive amounts of damage and devastation with our words. You know, I talked about that little playground scenario at the beginning. I wonder how many of you could relate to that. How many of you at some point in your life have been hurt by someone's words? Can I see your hand? I have. And let me turn it around and ask, how many of you have, you'd admit, I've hurt other people with my words? Yeah. All of us have, all of us have. Our tongues have alarming potential for destruction, don't they? Again, James loves metaphors. Notice the metaphors here. He says the tongue is like a tiny spark, tiny little spark that bursts into flames, spreads like wildfire until an entire forest is engulfed in flames. 
causing widespread devastation. And we've seen those images on our television screens lately, haven't we? From out west, out in California, where those fires are raging. Some of them started by just a small spark. Massive destruction. He likens the tongue to a wild animal, restless, out of control, needing to be reined in. He likens it to a poisonous snake full of of venom, poised and ready to strike. Are those positive images? Not really. I think they were meant to be scary. I think James wanted to jolt people and wake them up to the havoc that can be wrought by our words. We'll talk more about poisonous, inflaming, destructive words in a few moments, both spoken and typed. Number four, he says, stop the shameful double speak of the inconsistent tongue. Let me read again verses 9 and 10. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And we just did that a few moments ago, didn't we? We lifted up songs of praise to God and to His Son, Jesus Christ. We love doing that. When we prayed for one another during our brother's keeper time, we spoke words to God, asking Him for things, beseeching things from Him, giving Him more praise. With the tongue, we do. Praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. I'm sure being a pastor, pastoring a large congregation, Pastor James had seen this firsthand, you know. He'd seen Brother Jedediah there at church on the Lord's Day, right? Praising God, hallelujah, lifting his hands, saying praise the Lord. How's it going, brother? Those kinds of things. But then on Monday... He would hear from Brother Jedediah's wife about some other stuff coming out of that same mouth. (laughs) Some verbal jabs, some cutting sarcasm, some angry outbursts, even some profanity. And James says, what's with that? Jedediah, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth inconsistent. It doesn't make sense. This should not be. And here again, we see the the doubleness that James has been all through his letter confronting and exposing. In verse 8, you remember of chapter 1, the double-minded man, remember that? Unstable in all his ways. Here it's the double speak, people speaking out of both sides of their mouth. In chapter 4, he's going to talk about the divided devotion of the heart of those who want to be a friend of God, but also kind of be a friend of, of the world. And he's pleading, isn't he? He's pleading with God's people to have an integrated life where your worship and your walk and your words all match. They line up and your life gives one coherent message to the world and it's this, God has all of me. God has all of me. I I belong to him in total. And then James makes what I think is his main point, number five, and it's this, realize that, the, that only a transformed heart will ever produce a tame tongue. Verses 11 and 12, and again, James loves using illustrations from nature, and so in these verses he talks about water flowing from a spring, and he talks about trees producing certain kinds of fruit. And here's what he's saying, he's saying our words 
come from somewhere. Our words have a source. They arise from somewhere, and I think he got that from hearing his older brother talk, Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words recorded in, in Matthew 12, 34. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. And so, we can deduce, spiritually speaking, that what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. What's in the heart comes out of the mouth. What is in the heart comes out of the mouth. Out of the overflow, the abundance of the heart, it leaks. <laughs> it seeps out. It comes out the mouth. They're connected. A heart full of evil will produce evil words just as surely as a saltwater spring will produce salt water. And a heart full of good stuff will produce good words just as surely as an olive tree will produce olives. That's what he's saying. That's why just trying to monitor your words at the mouth level doesn't work. Because our words come from somewhere. You ever wish you had a word snatcher that you could take back? Take back. I remember I was, my wife and I were at a dinner party once. This was years ago and a lot of people were there, and we were across the table from this couple. And, and just to make conversation, I looked at the wife, and I said, so, how's the pregnancy going? <laughs> Give me that back. <laughs> Give me that word back. Oh, it was horrible. I had forgotten that just previously she'd gone through a miscarriage. and Yeah, that's how I felt about that tall at the time. But you know, you can't just... Control your mouth by monitoring your words at the mouth level. It goes to the heart, doesn't it? It's got to start with the heart, with a changed heart, because what's in the heart flows out of the mouth. Be sure if you hear someone spewing out bitter words that they have bitterness in their heart. And if you see someone giving words of gratefulness and appreciation, be assured they have a grateful heart. What's in the heart comes out of the mouth. Only a transformed heart will produce a tamed tongue. And that's yet another reason why we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ here every week, week in and week out, so that hearts will be melted and changed by hearing again and again and again of the immense love of Jesus Christ for his people. Amen. A love that prompted him to lay down his life, to pay for our sins to, to take our condemnation and judgment that we deserve for our many sins, to take that upon himself, why would he do it? Because of his great love for you and for me. And when someone hears that good news and responds by saying, Oh God, with me at the helm of my life, with me at the steering wheel, with me at the controls, I've been making a mess of things. And I've been offending you, a holy God. I've got to have Christ in my life. I do believe that he did all that for me. And now that he's alive and, and he's God and he will save all who call upon his name in faith, I desperately want to receive that new heart that he promised to those who believe. And isn't that the essence of the new covenant, by the way? As it was 
promised in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel where God said, I'll give you a new heart, I'll take out your stony hard heart, and I'll give you a new heart of flesh that pulsates with the life of God. By the way, talk about words that have great impact. How about these words? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you what, those words spoken sincerely from the heart will change everything. Not only in this life, but all of eternity. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For sure, the only hope you and I have of ever reigning in our restless tongues is being transformed, like we just sung about, on the inside by His grace and then daily submitting to His Lordship in our lives and then filling up our hearts with the Word of God. I'll tell you, my, you didn't know me before Christ, but, but I was a sarcastic, cutting guy. I was good at it, me and my buddies. When I gave my life to Jesus, things started to change, but they didn't really change until I started getting God's word into my heart because what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. But the more and more I read, heard, studied, memorized, meditated on the word of God, I began to see my speech changing. That's how it happens. Man, I hope you have fully given your whole life to Jesus Christ, everything, heart, soul, mind strength he deserves that he deserves nothing less than that everything you've got well in our time remaining i want to talk about these two categories of words that jesus talked about the evil stored up and the good stored up i want to talk about some words that tear down and some words that build up you can turn over the back side let's start with the darker side okay Let's talk about destructive words that tear down. And the Bible talks about at least four categories of words that offend God and do damage to our relationships and to other people. When James talked about the tongue being a fire, you know, that's set on fire by hell and can scorch people, when he talked about poisonous words that inject venom, these are the kinds of words he was talking about. First, lying and deception. Lying and deception. One of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. You shall not lie. And all through the Bible, it's clear that deceiving people is one sure way to not only destroy trust with them, but also to corrupt our own character. And grieves God, of course. By the way, God is truth. God is truth. He's the embodiment of truth. There's a verse in Titus that says God cannot lie. And when God's people with God's life in them, with God's nature in them, cave in to deception and lying, we, we grieve him. We grieve the Lord. When we distort the truth to hide our sins, when we intentionally give a false impression to make ourselves look a little bit better, or when we withhold the truth when actually the truth needs to be spoken, Things start to break down in relationships. You know this. Nothing breeds mistrust and suspicion and loss of respect like deception. When husbands deceive their wives, when children lie to their parents, when employees lie to their superiors at work, it's, 
It's like a corrosive acid that begins to break down the fabric of that relationship, isn't it? Plus, lying hurts the liar. It's a self-sabotaging exercise. You start weaving this web of deceit, and pretty soon, you don't even know what's true anymore. You start believing your own lies. One man said this, Every time you or I tell a lie, there is an internal dismemberment of our character. It corrodes and corrupts us. Whether you tell a big whopper or a little white lie or just are rounding up. That slight exaggeration to make yourself look a little bit better than you know you really are or to cover yourself. It's evil. It's wrong. It's sinful. It grieves the Lord because it's deceptive. I pray regularly the Holy Spirit would show me the depth of my deception, because it's in me. I know it is. And I pray that He will show you the depth of your deception as well. I pray that He'll expose us and bring our sin to light. A number of times through the years, I've had a husband or wife sitting in my office, and they'll say, Steve, I... In my marriage, something's wrong, something's off. I don't really know what it is, but something's putrid in Peru. I suspect something's going on. I'm not sure what it is, and and I almost always say the same thing. Let's pray about it. Let's ask God to expose it and bring it to light, whatever it is, whatever's going on. And you know what? God answers that prayer. Sometimes within days, it's happened within days, it got exposed you know, that's the mercy of God, isn't it? To show us the truth, to reveal the truth so that we can see it. We can't repent of anything that we don't see to bring it up. It's God's mercy to do that. So lying and deception are destructive, wrecking ball words that tear people down. Secondly, slander and gossip are no better. Oh my, we live in the Facebook age, right? (laughs) It's a whole new ball game from just... A few decades ago, we know what slander is. It's passing on damaging information about one person to someone else or to the whole Facebook world. I wonder how many reputations have been ruined by rumor. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name, a good name is more to be desired than great riches. But how many times has a good name established by years of living with integrity, been completely destroyed by one email, one text message, one Facebook rant, one careless tweet. Think about it, this is an especially dark sin, slander. You know, if someone steals, we kind of understand that. I mean, it's not right, but we understand it because they gain something from it, but with slander or gossip, what, what is gained? Just some sick, twisted sort of satisfaction over feeling superior now to that person whose reputation lies in ashes on the ground? It's evil. It should not be named among God's people, according to James. And when it does rear its ugly head, it ought to be confronted. I'd love it if we declared New Life Church to be a slander-free zone. We're in our small groups and in our Facebook posts. We become very careful about what we say or what we imply about someone. 
And how about if when someone tries to get you to join them, you know, join their cause in trashing this other person or casting them in a negative light, you just look at them and say, you know, I don't think I want to hear about that. I don't think I want to hear about that. And by the way, what are you trying to accomplish by spreading this? Next category is no better. Devaluing and diminishing. I know it's cool at certain ages to make, to say things that make people feel stupid or dumb or to call them names or to make fun of their flaws, but as we grow up, as we grow, grow in maturity, shouldn't that childishness come to an end? And didn't Paul say, now that I'm a man, I've put away childish things? Those kinds of words that devalue people and diminish them leave scars for life. There are adults walking around with jagged holes in their hearts from the serrated knife of cutting words spoken 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Do you doubt this? Verse 9, James reminds us of a great truth that all people were created in the image of God and have dignity and worth and value. Even that person who is so different from you that you don't understand, even that person that you don't like being around or who you think despises you, even that person has the image of God stamped on them. They're created by God. And I always like to remind myself and others, and and you know what else? Jesus died for their sins too. Not Not just my sins. Every person, you've never looked into the eyes of someone who didn't have the image of God stamped on them, who didn't matter to God a great deal. Why would we devalue people? Perhaps taking some cues from James, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this in Ephesians 4.29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Another translation says, Don't let any corrupt communication come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Interesting, the word translated unwholesome there, see that? That's a tame translation, i got to tell you. It literally refers to meat that has sat out and gotten spoiled. And so you could translate it like this. Do not let any maggot-infested talk come out of your mouths. And some of us are serving up some pretty smelly, nasty, rotten stuff, and it needs to stop. It's turning God's stomach. How about profanity? obscenity. My kids were younger, like many of you parents. I like to find out who their friends were at school and, you know, hey, what's going on and who are you hanging out with? And oftentimes I would ask them, you know, uh, do, do you think so-and-so is a Christian? You think your friend is a Christian? And I remember once my 10-year-old uh, looked at me and said, well, Dad, I don't know. They cuss a lot. I thought, well, interesting, isn't it? Even a 10-year-old somehow seems to know instinctively that a person's heart is revealed by what comes out of their mouth. Off-color, sexually-oriented jokes and stories, choice four-letter words spewed out in angry rage, and especially using the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ as a curse word, has no place among the true people of God. 
Paul would reiterate this in Ephesians chapter 5. Those words offend God, they hurt people, and they reveal rottenness in a person's heart. Profanity and obscenity. Okay, enough of that, the dark side. Let's go to the other side. Let's mention some categories of words that bless people and edify them and build them up. And first would be praise and affirmation. Praise and affirmation. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. It's true, isn't it? You just watch a mom or a dad speaking affirming words to their child and watch that child light up. I want to remind those of you who are parents, you who are parents in this room, you know what? You create the climate in your home. You, by your words and your tone, create the atmosphere in your home. So why not create a warm, uplifting, nurturing environment that's conducive to children growing up safe and secure? Why not do that instead of always haranguing on what they do wrong? Why not catch them doing something right for a change? Good job, son. Good job, honey. Way to go. That was awesome. I'm super proud of you. By the way, that's a powerful phrase right there. And it doesn't have to be reserved for when your kids are little. They can be up here in their 20s or 30s, and you can say, you know, I just want you to know I am so proud of you. Man, it just breathes fresh wind into their sails. Words of praise and affirmation. How about at work? Oh, no, he's talking about work. Yeah, how about at work? Instead of always catching that gall, that gal, you know, that gall. I have gall. I found out I have gallstones this week, so I got gallbladder on the mind, okay? Sorry. Uh, yeah. Instead of focusing on that gal's incompetence, you know, the one in the cubicle next to you or whatever, how about catching her doing something right? about saying, hey, way to go. Way to go. I love that we're on the same team together. Man, we're, we're flat out getting it done. We're making it happen here. I don't know how we'd get along without you. Those words of affirmation, as I said, are oxygen to the human soul. We thrive on that. At literally, think about this, at no cost to yourself, you can breathe fresh wind into someone's sails. You can set their heart soaring with your words. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. How about words of gratefulness and appreciation? A, a little thank you goes a long way, doesn't it? Hey, thanks for that. Thanks for that. Or appreciating someone for the kind of person that they are. And I want you to know, you just, you're setting the pace for the rest of us. You know, I appreciate the person God is making you to be. Th those kinds of words build people up. I got a friend who always, whenever I say, how are you doing, he always answers the same way. How you doing? Better than I deserve. It's pretty good, huh? I do think that a striking feature of a gospel community, a true gospel community, is the spirit of gratefulness that permeates the, the atmosphere because we all realize we're all getting way more than we deserve from God's hand. It's true, isn't it? We read from Proverbs that the right words are like apples of gold in settings of silver. Beautiful, beautiful. Grateful words are that way. How about words of value that communicate value and respect? Nobody thrives in a climate of disrespect. No one. 
Verse 9, James laments how Christians were dishonoring each other. So wives, let me talk to you wives for a moment. Your husband especially needs to feel respected. He needs to feel respect from you, whether he admits that or not. Did you know studies have shown that most husbands, most men would rather feel respected than loved? Runs deep. Runs deep in men. And when you belittle him and make him feel stupid or incompetent, you're attacking him at the core of his being, and you watch, he'll shrivel up. He will. You've got to learn to see your guy as God sees him. Learn to honor your husband, maybe not for the kind of man he is at the moment, but for the kind of man that God wants him to be and for the role that God has placed him in in your life. When you do that, when you start treating your husband that way, you just might start to see some of those changes you've been praying about. He'll respond, I guarantee it. Words of value and respect, words of affection and love. You know, recently a wife told me, you know what, my, my husband never tells me that he loves me. I said, never? Never. Oh, my. And just talking to her, I could see there's a huge void, a huge cavity in her soul and emptiness that should have been being filled up by her husband's words of love and affection, but they weren't there. And as a result, she is downcast, depressed, and she's vulnerable to that guy who comes along showing her the kind of attention and affection that she needs. Words of love and affection. Have you spoken those words lately? Have you looked into the eyes of your spouse or your children? Just said, yeah, I love you. You mean so much to me. Our relationship is so important to me, and I want you to know that. Man, those are powerful words. Don't use them sparingly. They build people up. Well, I think what James is trying to get across here is this. Our words matter. They matter. Maybe more than we thought. They impact other people deeply. They reveal a lot about what's inside of us. Now listen, I don't believe the Lord would have us hear a message like this on our words without prompting us to do something in response to hearing the word of God. I mean, didn't we learn earlier, be not just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And so I would say this to you this morning. You probably need to say something to someone in response to God's word today. Maybe you need to say words to God. Maybe you need to confess to God. Lord, I I am so sorry. I didn't see it before. I am so sorry for offending you and hurting your people with my words. Maybe you need to say those Ultimately powerful words, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me for Christ's sake. You might need to confess something to God. You might need to confess or admit something to a friend. Hey, I am, I am so sorry. I didn't see it, but now I see how what I said hurt you, injured you, wounded you. I am so sorry. That was so wrong of me. Will you forgive me? By the way, when you say that, just let it hang. Will you forgive me? It's a question, right? so that they can then make a choice. Something to a friend. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness from your spouse. Or how about this, parents, from your kids? Son, honey, I am so sorry 
how I came across the other day when I said that to you. It was harsh. It was unreasonable. Please forgive me. Man, that'll go a long way. And you, you think it'll diminish you in their eyes, and it won't. It'll elevate you in their eyes. Man, my, my, my dad, my mom gets, gets it. They get Jesus. They get the gospel. Maybe you need to give somebody an, an, an affirmation, a, a way to go. I appreciate you. Thank you. You may need to speak something into someone's heart or life, maybe some words of affection. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Find some white space on your study guide there. We're going to take 30 seconds of silence for you to hear from God. And if he hasn't already, when he brings someone's face or name to your mind, I want you to write it down and what needs to be said to them, okay? Let's take 30 seconds and just hear from the Lord. Father, I do pray now that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. May we not just hear your word this morning, but may we hear it and act on it soon, today, at the prompting of your Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.